Welcome to the Transform Podcast. My name is Andrew Farhat. I am the lead pastor of St. John's Church and School in Denver, Colorado, right across the street from Wash Park. And in this podcast, what we do is we consider what it looks like to follow Jesus. We consider what it looks like uh, to be committed to a Christ-centered worldview and operate with that as our lifestyle. This podcast is for you if you are seeking what that might look like or if you have already committed your life to Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Transform Podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew Farhat. I'm here with guest PJ Arsval. Hey, Andrew. Good to see you. So glad to have you back. How was how was your Christmas and New Year? It feels like it's been a long time. Yeah, it, it does feel like it's been a long time. It was good. As uh, some people might know, we had a new baby in November, and so we now are a family of four and are adjusting to that, but it's been great. And, you know, the fun thing about kids is you think like you have a limited amount of love and you've got to distribute it, but it feels like whenever you have another kid, there's just more love around. Like, now she has love to give, and we all have love for her, and so it's been good. How are you doing? Awesome. That I'm doing great. I'm doing I'm doing excellent. But yeah, I think there's nothing that compares to just having that newborn in your home, and the joy of that, and the gift of new life. So yeah, uh, welcome Lily to the world. It's good for her to be here. Yeah, what a beautiful girl she is. So praise be to God for Lily. And today our question is. Uh, why does believing in the real presence in Holy Communion, why does that matter? Yep. Um, and I think it's a good question. And I guess we'll just, you know, just to start off, PJ, I think I would ask you, like, why does this belief make a difference? Because um, there's a lot of Christians today that believe that Holy Communion, which is the bread and wine uh, that Jesus gave to us on mm-hmm. the night in which he was betrayed... Uh, many Christians today believe it's only a representation of his body and blood, that it's yeah. not the true body and blood. And, you know, my question for you is like, are we just getting into semantics or is this worth talking about? Yeah, I think it's a, a really good question to start off with because for many of us, you sometimes it's one of the few things you know about a church's differences. Like not many churches make a big deal about like, hey, what do you think about the ascension of Christ and what it all means? Like, that doesn't become a big deal. But for a lot of churches, you can tell right away, what is what do they believe about communion? Um, if you go to a church that has different communion practices, sometimes they may or may not commune you. And so it's one that we were faced with as Christians, and it's worthy one to talk about. I'll start off by just saying that it is a topic that is very clearly important to Jesus. If you think about if you're the son of God who's about to die, what would you do on the last night that you had on earth? Jesus decided, I'm going to institute something that I want my followers to do. And so clearly it meant something to him um, because he gathers them all and they're there for the Passover. And then he institutes this new supper, um, this new covenant. And so um, first off, it matters to Jesus. It's not something we should just gloss over as inconsequential, um, but it's something worth talking about, reflecting on. Absolutely. So why don't we go into what he said on that last night? Because you are correct. The last night he replaced... Uh, the Seder meal or the Passover meal uh, with Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. So that's a big thing that he did right yeah. there. Um, and so we want to get it right. Exactly, right? We yeah. We want to understand what he wanted for us, yeah. right? Because that would be pretty messed up if we did. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's those uh, very famous mystical words of Christ. This is my body. Mm-hmm. This is my blood. Yeah. So... I think that there is an option somewhere in grammar to take that metaphorically. Sure. However, what would you say would be the arguments for taking it at face value? 
Yeah, I think um, first and foremost, it is a very, like we said, a significant moment. I'm um, not that Jesus' other ministry isn't, but in this moment in particular, um, you can just imagine the disciples with bated breath. Like they've they've seen all this coming. Jesus has foretold his crucifixion like three times, and so they're listening to him, and he and he hands this to them. Um, and I know we'll look at this later, but previously in his ministry, you have the bread of life discourse in John 6, where he's already told his disciples that anyone who wants eternal life needs to eat the, his flesh and drink his blood. Like that is already in their vocab from his ministry. And so this is not all of a sudden like, whoa, this is out of nowhere. This is something that in a lot of ways he's prepared them for. Um, and then you just have the, again, you, you could take it different ways, but it's just very straightforward. He's very blunt with just, this is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat, take, and drink. Okay. So basically, he says, this is my body, this is my blood. He also mentioned that earlier in his ministry, he did kind of do some legwork for this. Yeah. And I believe you're referring to John 6, verse 53. And what does Jesus say in that verse there? Yeah, he says, uh, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And one of my, I'll just really quickly, one of my favorite parts, if you read the section, it's a very long section. Um, this is coming after he fed them physical bread. Um, and so one of the things he calls out is like, oh, why are you following me? Is it just because I fed you and you were full? Like, he's trying to direct them that I, I'm giving you more than just physical food. I'm doing something more important here. And then when he starts talking about eating his flesh and blood, you literally have people in the crowd who say, how could you give us your flesh and blood? And he says it again. And then they're like, this is a hard teaching. And he doubles down, he triples down, and the end of that scene actually results in most of the crowd leaving Jesus. They stop following him because the idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood is too repulsive, and so they leave him, and then he turns to the disciples and it's like, you're going to leave too? And then they you know, show faith and stick by him, but um, he's willing to lose followers to say, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah, I think you're bringing up a very strong chapter here. This is yeah. John chapter 6. Early in the chapter, Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000. Um, and then he begins the bread of life discourse. I think what's interesting about that chapter two is that Jesus is said to give thanks prior to distributing yeah. uh, the food to the 5,000 too. Um, hmm. And so the word give thanks is twice in the chapter. And that Greek word is eucharisto, where we get Eucharist, Eucharist. from. So you got Eucharistic overtones in the chapter. And then you, you really bring up a really good point. He says, "This is my." He says, "You're gonna eat my flesh and drink my blood." Um, and then the disciples did take him literally, and I think in yeah. verse sixty, um, it says something like, "Are you, uh, you know, what does it say there in verse 60? You got yeah. your Bible open." Yeah, I got, I got, I love this chapter. So he's, yeah. uh, the disciples say, "This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it?" But Jesus, knowing in himself the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, "Do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before?" Um, so he's kind of like, you, really? Like, you're having an issue? Like, what if you were to see me ascend to heaven, right? You know? It's like he's doubling down. Yeah. He's basically saying, if you can't comprehend something this miraculous, how are you going to comprehend when you see me fly up back to heaven yeah, in front of you? exactly. <laughs> you know? um, now, in verse 63, he does say, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Um, and some interpreters would take that to negate everything else he said and just say, well, he's just speaking spiritually. And spiritually, in their definition, can't have anything to do with the material. However, that's not a biblical paradigm. That's no. a platonic paradigm that the material and the spiritual can't go together. Um, so 
the early church, and we'll get to this in a moment, but I think we want to hit on Scripture first, is yeah. the early church was unanimous that he was speaking in a realistic fashion. Yeah, they didn't take it as a symbol. Right. That's right. So those are a couple very uh, strong arguments. Um, And then also, I would point to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, to, you know, as we kind of talk about what the Bible says, and we are uh, Protestant believers that do truly believe in Scripture alone. Yeah. So that's where we're going to start Final rule and authority. You got it. It's Paul writes, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Notice he doesn't say like the spirit of Christ. Yeah. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So I think the the key has got to be that word participation. Like what does that word mean? And it's the Greek word koinonia. Mm -hmm. It's a word that can mean participation or sharing in or even could mean having union with. Yeah. So he's saying you are going to have union with the body and blood of Christ as you partake of eating and drinking this bread and wine. So those are some strong words. And then, of course, in the next chapter, you have... uh, the Corinthians going crazy and getting drunk at communion and excluding yeah. poor people. And they get a pretty stern rebuke from Paul in the next chapter. Yeah. And, and they're not just rebuke, they're actually warned that if you take this lightly, if you don't um, take this for all that it really is, if you treat this bread and wine simply as food and drink, um, you're actually going to potentially harm yourself. He says, some of you, many of you have fallen asleep and gotten sick. Um, so there's some sort of judgment that can actually come upon us when we don't do this right. They were taking it as like, oh, like, I want some wine. Let me gulp it down and not share any with my fellow Christian, um, rather than realizing the special meal that it is instituted by Jesus. And so, um, again, that's just another reason to to realize something's happening here. This is not just a nice reminder. Um, This is God doing something. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think we should definitely note they were getting drunk at communion and excluding the poor. Um, So... I think the heart of the rebuke is directed at those sins that are there. Sure. Um, but certainly what you're saying is true. We need to understand what is it that Jesus gave to us here. Um, yeah. And all right. And then on that note, I wanted to highlight uh, a, a couple of things. And, and first, well, first, why don't we do the early church? Because when we talk about the Bible... Uh, we understand, yes, the Bible is the authority, but we're not the first ones to pick this book up. No. Um, and if we think that we really can figure out the Bible all on our own, um, man, I, I think that's a mistaken approach because it is complex. There's exegetical directions that very faithful scholars can go in different directions on mm-hmm. passages, and you can respect both of them. All the time. Yeah. And so I think that what we want to do here is say, all right, this is my body, this is my blood. What did the early church believe? Because yeah. you got a guy named Ignatius that was uh, mentored by John. Mm-hmm. And then you got in the next century, you got Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. And these are all names of famous pastors. They're famous writers. Uh, so they're basically like influential pastors in that time. Yeah. And I guess my question to you, PJ, is... What did the early church believe about this? Yeah, you hinted at this earlier, maybe flat out said it, but um, the early church seems to have received the teaching. You think of Ignatius being taught by John, who just 
who wrote what we were just reading in the Bread of Life discourse, um, the early church was pretty consistent on that this is actually Jesus's flesh and blood. Um, they were pretty strong in reinforcing that. And the fact that they reinforced it, I feel like means that there was maybe already a couple people popping up like, well, I don't know about that. And so they were pretty clear, no, this is flesh. This is Jesus's blood. Um, it's not just a reminder. And so um, you see those, the earliest people who, who received scripture, who learned from the people who wrote scripture, um, came away with that understanding. And I, I love that we're looking at this because um, there's this great meme out there about uh, this guy. He's got kind of like the family tree of Christian denominations, and it starts off and it branches off, and there's a hundred branches. And then he points to like a present day spot and says, and then here's where we finally got it right, right? Um, as if like the Christian faith, like everyone was wrong forever. Um, so what you find in the early churches, they were consistent on this. And it, and for even for the first 1,500 years of the church, this was pretty universal um, that the church held this belief. And it was about 500 years ago that a few people started to, I don't know about that. I don't know if that really makes sense. Um, but the early church, like you said, really was consistent. This is flesh and blood. This is not just um, a nice reminder. This is meaningful. So just to kind of piggyback on what you just said, Ignatius, Hippolytus, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, these are all famous pastors in the first four centuries of the church. Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian of Carthage, Cyril of Jerusalem, Ambrose of Milan, Theodore of... How do I pronounce that? I think it's Mopsuitia. Okay, thank you. August, <laughs> Augustine and, and the Council of Ephesus, which was a famous council. Yeah. So all of them are unanimous. So this is hard for us to imagine. Mm-hmm. So I think we live in the United States of America. That's where we're doing this podcast from. Um, and there's a lot of uh, beliefs available to us. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how we get to certain points. However, the symbolic view wouldn't have been available to you prior to Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin in the 16th century. Yeah. That's kind of that first, that movement really kicks off, I guess, the credibility of not uh, the symbolic view, like that there's actually more of a foothold. Before that, you really don't see that yeah. in any pre- predominant group. So uh, Marcus Gray also known as Flame, uh, great rapper. I've been listening to Flame since 2005, Yeah, I believe, somewhere around there. Um, and I, I love Flame. I've been a faithful follower for a long time. But what's been really interesting in his story is that he reviewed all of this. Yeah. And he goes, man, I feel kind of slighted to find out that no one believed in... The, the symbolic view for the first 1600 years or whatever. Yeah. And I kind of just heard him say that. And I was like, you know, he kind of has a good point there. You know, I want to know that. When he found that out, he didn't believe he wasn't, you know, believed in real presence. He learned that kind of after the fact, like, Oh wait. Yeah. He didn't grow up with that is what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. That's right. So he didn't grow up with that. And once he studied everything, he came around to believing in the, the doctrine of the real presence. And when we say real presence, we mean the bodily presence, not like spiritual presence, but the bodily presence. Um, And so I think that this is uh, phenomenal, and I would highly recommend uh, all of Flame's albums, but definitely his most recent ones. If you are interested in learning more about this topic of communion, he has an album called Christ For You, and the whole album is about communion and and that's different than any other rapper out I know, there to just so cool. take that topic and do a whole album on it. Yeah. I think that shows that he holds Jesus's words very sacred. Definitely. You know, um, so I highly recommend that. Also, he will be doing a concert here at St. John's, um, and that is 
uh, on, I believe, Friday, May 10th, um, and that's going to be at St. John's here in Denver. Uh, you're welcome to get tickets in a couple of weeks. We'll put those to the public. Uh, but but going back to all of this, PJ, why did Calvin and Zwingli, these are the famous Swiss reformers, Yeah. Uh, why did they go the direction of the symbolic view? Do you think that they were reacting in some way to the Roman Catholic Church? Sure. I think it's a great question. And I, I, hopefully it's clear uh, none of this conversation is meant to be a victory lap, like, oh, look at we're right, look at how great we are, our church is the right teaching. Um, sometimes doctrine gets held up as like points, like, you know, okay, we're winning. Um, that's not what we're trying to do here. Uh, but it's just helpful as we think of our own faith and how we understand God's Word and understand Jesus and what He has meant for us and done for us. And so for a lot of the Reformers, um, like Calvin and Zwingli, um, there's a, I think, a good desire to make sense of things, of of wanting things to be logically consistent, um, wanting to um, be able to kind of straighten everything out and say, all right, here's this means this, um, this can't be because of this, and so you have a lot of that, and this is right at the time of you know I think of like Renaissance humanist movement, um, all these different kind of other um, influences happening in this time and place that prize rationality and logic. Not, again, not bad in and of itself. And then you have kind of the, again, a reform from the Catholic Church at the time, which they may be viewed as um, overly, I don't want to say mysterious, but um, overly enchanted. You think of um, some of the, the emphasis that they saw on like relics and that you could touch the relic of a saint and have healing powers. And so there was kind of this um, reaction to kind of make it all logical and reasonable. And um, you get to the question eventually, all right, so this is bread and wine or is it flesh and blood? It doesn't taste like flesh and blood. Um, also, if Jesus is at God's right hand, how is his body also down here? And so they came to the conclusion that um, this is something different is happening. They can't actually have Jesus's physical flesh and blood in this bread and wine. And so that's really where they came down to. Okay. Got it. Now that's helpful, I think, for people to say, all right, well then, like, what were these other guys basing this off of? And Yeah. They weren't crazy. We here? No. No. Well, I think any, everything in us wants to take it as symbolic because it's... It's a strange thing yeah. to believe that you're consuming the body and blood of Jesus, right? Yeah. It's worth, we talked about the early church. One of the criticisms leveled against them in the second century was that they were cannibals because they talked about eating flesh and blood. And so right. the surrounding culture who were not Christians were like, look at these people. They believe in eating their Savior's body. So, um, so it makes sense to be like, all right, is that actually what's happening? I want to think about it. Right. And uh, it is actually Justin Martyr in the second century who says, this is what we were taught. Yeah. Which makes total sense to me. Yeah. Because it's not natural to believe in the real presence. So you must have been taught that. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting that Justin Martyr was so close to the time of Christ, mm -hmm. as was Ignatius. Yeah. But going back to the, the Catholic teaching, I think this is important to note as we seek to make sense of everything and to be helpful. Yeah. Um, Catholics also believe in the real presence as well as Lutherans. However, Catholics believe in what's called the sacrifice of the Mass. And the in the sacrifice of the Mass, there's a belief that you're re-offering mm -hmm. or you're repeating the sacrifice of Christ, um, and you're representing that to the Father. And the belief is that you are, as a believer, going through the process of justification and gradually having your sins forgiven. Yeah. 
Um, and then also that this sacrifice of the mass is not only for the living, but it's also for the departed in purgatory. Um, so I think that it's important to note that the Lutheran Reformation didn't take it that far. And my contention is as many of the Protestant groups and other Reformation groups were reacting to that because the idea that we're representing the sacrifice of Christ is nowhere in the New Testament, and that's a very Old Testament viewpoint. The New Testament is very clear that Jesus... Jesus' sacrifice once for all. Once for all, it's he. It's sufficient. It's permanent, and it's done. And then Paul and John are very clear that when we have faith in Christ, we have victory, and we're declared righteous, and we're one with Jesus in the heavens. Yeah. Um, Ephesians is very clear. I don't know how you can read Ephesians and not end up being like a Protestant in some way, shape, or form. Um, so anyway, I think that. That's the major difference between Lutherans and Catholics, is the doctrine of how we're saved. We're not saved by um, a gradual process of repeating the sacrifice of Christ, Mm -hmm. but we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and His death and resurrection is sufficient. Yeah. Um, So that's what I would say is is important to note. Um, And PJ, I think we need to finish with this question, because I know you got to go, is uh, why does this matter for discipleship? Yeah, it's a great question, again, because this is not just abstract stuff that we're trying to to prove that we're right. We're not here, you know, my ego doesn't need it for you to think I'm right. Um, but uh, but this actually makes a difference. And, and part of that is it, it speaks to how we understand the Christian life, how God still works in this world. Um, when you look at Jesus's ministry, um, take note of how many times he speaks and he touches. So somebody is deaf, he puts his fingers in the guy's ear, speaks, and the guy can hear again. Um, how many times there's somebody who has leprosy, he reaches out, he touches them and says, be clean, and they're clean. So there's this pattern of God's word through Jesus and then a physical action, a physical touch encounter with God that does something. Um, and so this is really just an extension of that where Jesus is saying, I'm going to speak to you this promise, this is my body and blood, and then I'm actually going to reach down and touch you in your world. Um, There's a real temptation amongst Christians of separating, you talked about earlier, spirit and and physical material. And sometimes as Christians, we just think like what matters is the spiritual world, where Paul, you know, talks in Romans 12 about offering your body as a living sacrifice. And this is your spiritual worship. So how do you worship God spiritually? Use your body. Um, And so just seeing that God works in the world through means. Um, When you are feeling guilty. It's not that you can, I mean, you could just sit there and think about stuff, um, but sometimes you need another Christian or a pastor to speak to you, um, that God is actually going to use that person. And so this is just how we understand God's work in this world. He's not devoid. He's not, hey, I'm out there if you come find me, but he's reaching down every Sunday. He reaches in every day of our life and actually touching us, um, working in us, um, coming to us. He doesn't wait um, but he actually breaks into this world. Um, it's a foretaste of when he's going to return again physically, his whole body intact, and uh, restore all things. So that's just one little snippet. I love what you said, because basically you are summarizing that there's an authoritative, performative word of Jesus, yeah, and that he often uses means to accomplish his mir- miracles and grace. Um, and then we see that here with, this is my body, this is my blood. And then I would also piggyback on that and say, we need the grace of God 
And Jesus says, this is my body and blood that was given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Yeah. So discipleship is highly grace-centered. We need God's grace every day. Uh, We need God's grace every week. Uh, We need Christ alive in us, and He is by faith. Um, I think the doctrine of the real presence is I want to uh, assure you of the forgiveness that you have and and give you an experience of that weekly. Because this is the heart of why um, I gave myself up for you. This is the heart of what we're doing here in communion. It's to give you my costly grace, but yet it's freely given as a gift. Yeah. Well, I love that because um, the early church too, one of the terms they often would use with communion is the word medicine. They thought that this was healing for your spirit. So if you're struggling with your faith, one of the things you do is you take communion because it's God once again giving you that promise, reaching down, um, giving you faith. Um, and so uh, this also should shape, you know, I, geez, I want to get communion often. I, I you know, I, I want to be there. I want to be at worship. I want to get this. Um, and it gives you a direction. Again, what do I do um, when I'm struggling with something? I go to where God has promised. He, he promises to speak um, through his word and through his servants. He's promised to, to bless in baptism and communion. Um, so it gives you somewhere to go. It doesn't leave you just trying to figure it out. Um, and the last thing I'll make a point too, and the reason why this doctrine is important is because it serves as a bit of a litmus test for all of us on just how willing we are to take Jesus at his word. Um, and that, that doesn't mean you never think critically about things and try and interpret scripture. What is this actually saying? What is it not saying? Do all of that. Um, but there are times in our faith where what Jesus has said is not going to line up line up with what I think. And I, I talk to people all the time who it's got, you know, the classic example I always go to is, you know, God promises to be with us till the end of the age for his people. And there's times where you look around and feel like God's nowhere. Um, do I trust him that he's there even when it doesn't feel like it? Um, and so communion is a great test for that too, because he says this is his body and blood. I don't really get how that works. Um but it's what he said. And so I'm going to take him as a word, at his word and trust it because um, as his disciples say, when Jesus asks at the end of Bread of Life discourse, um, are you going to leave too? And his disciples say, Lord, to where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so um, ultimately it leads us back to those life-giving words. Yeah, that's very strong, PJ. And um, truly, this is an important doctrine and uh, Jesus wants us to have the full experience of it. And so if you're listening and this has blessed you, we want to encourage you to follow. Um, And then also, if this can be a blessing to someone else, we also want to encourage you to share it with anyone you believe uh, would benefit from this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer, please submit those to hello at sjdenver.org, and we will see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.